So we are here in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast. We are with Samuel Hammond, which is uh, the director of Poverty and Welfare, the Niskanen Center, to talk about his recent piece that tackles a lot of issues, but centrally the, the relationship with of egalitarianism and corporations and, and taxation and, and the kind of progressive discourse that is occurring now. Thanks for having me, So, how how you you describe this debate? What do you think is 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 being missed in, in this conversation? Uh, can you be uh, more specific? The, uh, do you mean the tax conversation, or do you mean the um, corporate governance? More the tax conversation. So you know, um, I guess the the two biggest recent developments were uh, in reverse order: Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's uh, sort of casual uh, suggestion that we have a 70% tax on people making over $10 million. Um, so I guess I can take those in, uh, in order. Uh, I mean, what they have in common is, I, as I see it, a, an emerging tendency on the right, or on the left, sorry, uh, to attack wealth per se and to be suspicious of wealth um, as its own phenomena and I think this is clearly being driven by the conversation that you know uh, Zuckman says and Piketty uh, launched with uh, their research uh, the rise in wealth inequality um, and you know my view is that part of the problem here is uh, it's moving towards a vision of egalitarianism uh, premise on leveling down, um, and that's something that I think is counterproductive uh, first, and also hard to defend in, on traditional uh, egalitarian philosophical grounds. It's, it's, it's much easier to talk about, you know, how, how do we share the fruits of uh, our labor that are shared in common because of the common system we have, because, you know, as, as Elizabeth Warren once put it, you know, you didn't build that, that other people helped build those companies for you. So there's a totally valid you know, claim that the rest of society has as members of one system towards um, the benefits and the cooperative surplus that's created uh, by you know entrepreneurs, by people who uh, accumulate a lot of wealth. But there's nothing wrong in that framework with someone being enormously wealthy per se, right? And so this, is, this showed up in um, Ocasio-Cortez uh, she had a statement where she said, and uh, 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 every billionaire is a policy failure, right? Um, now that's one person. That's one view. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, my, my view is that it really depends. Uh, so you know, we have this concept of, of the deserving and undeserving poor, uh, but uh, we don't have a analogous concept with the for the deserving and undeserving rich, right? Um, and the view expressed by that sentiment that every billionaire is a policy failure is that there is no such thing as a deserving billionaire. Um, now, I think that is wrong on its face. Like, if we go back to the classic, you know, Wilt Chamberlain thought experiment from Nozick, uh, if people all come to see Wilt Chamberlain and each pay a dollar to get entry, and enough people come, he'll he'll make a ton of money, and, and every and and all that money comes through voluntary exchange. Um, there's nothing there that seems inherently 
unjust or or wrong. Now he may, you know, we may be able to say he deserves to pay a higher income tax, uh, but um, I certainly don't see anything inherently immoral by that accumulation of wealth, um, so long as it's done through, you know, peaceful, voluntary, just means rather than like rent seeking or uh, insider trading or what have you. So that, that's just a fundamental difference between my my views on wealth and inequality, and I think the tendency that's moving on the more radical left, uh, and I think it's a bit of a danger, not only in itself, but also because it distracts from other forms of inequality in society, including uh, the emergence of a, of a very robust upper middle class in America um, that isn't, they aren't multimillionaires, but they uh, wield a lot of power, both politically and economically, um, and, you know, make up the uh, sort of bourgeoisie of <laughs> American cities and universities and, um, and also, you know, are some of Warren and AOC's most servant supporters, ironically. Yeah, but it's very curious because, I mean, I think more on overseas and particularly in the UK, there has been some issues about the, the full luxury communism because when, when people have argued with, with socialists and communists in the UK, they, they have defended the idea that no, they don't want uh, all people being poor and, and that will be that equality. They, they want people to, to all being having, I don't know if they use the term rich, but but having access to, to goods and, 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 and some have a more techno-utopian vision of it that, 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 that roads will work for us and, and we all could, could have this this uh, prosperity and I think a lot the, a lot of this issue had the had to be with the the image I don't know if you remember the image of of a Gucci store and a, and the and the flag of uh, of China with with the symbol of, of the hammer and sickle and, and a lot of people uh, start to, to put a particular on Twitter saying the, the full luxury communism future is is here or things like that and it's very curious but. But I think in, in, in the case of the U.S., it has been contrary to that because it, it's, I mean, in some countries, the the billionaires are much less known. So we don't, for example, in Peru, I mean, people know their names, but basically they don't know many or almost anything about them. And, right, and I think there might be big, bigger problems in um, a country like Peru, uh, or some emerging markets, right? There are probably more opportunities in those countries for um, genuine rent-seeking, genuine corruption to be a main driver behind uh, wealth inequality. Certainly, the uh, exclusive access to government contracts, for example, is yeah. a common yeah. problem in, in a lot of emerging markets. Um, it, it's, and so there's a bit of a, I think, a bit of a, a, a you know, the. the it's weird for this conversation to be happening in the United States, where, um, you know, comparatively, our billionaires are very honest, <laughs> right? We have billionaires who come, um, you know, many of them are, Dr. Dre is a billionaire, for example. You know, yeah. he's, he, he is not from inherited wealth. He came from, uh, you know, his, his own success through the hip-hop industry. Um, and an awful lot of billionaires in the United States are relatively new. I think something like 91% of people in the top 1% of the U.S. economy uh, 
got yeah. there on their own. Uh, in, in other words, that they, that they didn't come from inheritance or natural wealth. Uh, and that's something to, I think, uh, celebrate. You know, it, it, so long as the money is being created and the wealth is being created through legitimate, honest means, it's not actually a zero-sum competition, right? Um, it's very different if somebody uh, used their exclusive contracts to, uh, you know, or contacts in government to get access to, you know, the only uh, natural oil reserve or something like that, and then was able to collect all the rents from the oil or what have you. Uh, so I think it's, it's very it's very unnerving, partly because it symbolizes that um, the American public is, is sort of losing faith in institutions, right? It doesn't. It, it's the left is losing faith in the idea that uh, there's legitimacy to the people who are the wealthiest in our society, rather than us being a kind of an republic. And that can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, for example, uh, I mean, there are two examples of, of billionaires in Latin America. For example, the issue of, of Carlos Slim the, right. in Mexico, which is uh, always accused of corruption and threat-seeking. And there is the case of Horchild, which is, was a, a mining tycoon in Bolivia, and he was responsible for one of the largest refugee uh, migrations that we were in, in Bolivia, and the Jewish community in Bolivia used to be large, but um, because of the difference, uh, the revolution of 72 and other problems, uh, most of the community moved either to the U.S., some to Argentina and some to Israel, but it was relatively much more than in Indian countries, it was much more close. And it was that because he was Jewish, he was a, a, a wealthy uh, Jewish businessman, and, and he had solidarity with his community, and right. and I think it's there are different kind of examples of, of, of how Latin American billionaires are, are perceived, and, and 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 I guess that's uh, that's also an issue. But I guess to a certain degree, at least the perception I had that in the past billionaires were celebrated more or less from the mainstream right and from the mainstream left. It was only the more hardcore elements of the left that, that, that were not in parliament or, or anywhere near right. power that, that were really critical of, of, of the billionaires. And, and, and now with Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, this kind of criticism is much more strong and, and becoming much more mainstream. And at the same time, in conservatives have been much more critical of, of billionaires with, for example, the more liberal billionaires like uh, Jeff Bezos, because uh, even right. Trump hates 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 Bezos. And, and right. yeah, and I think you know, there's nothing you know. We, we can kind of bracket the conversations because I think there's one group of people that want to have a kind of wonky conversation about you know how do marginal tax tax rates work and what is the best marginal tax rate. I, I'm less interested in that conversation because um, I think, especially with Warren and Ocasio-Cortez, the proposals are more symbolic of anything, and they're they're trying to, and what they symbolize is, is I think more important than the wonky details of how they actually work. You know, Switzerland has a wealth tax, and it's not devastating, um, but uh, it represents an undercurrent in American politics, and so insofar as uh, you know, the proposals are being put forward and are popular because there's a certain strain of thought in the American public. That's why I'm worried less than the proposals themselves. Um, I'm sorry if you can hear back in the background, I guess, that. 
yeah, but I mean, it's 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 really interesting because you you mentioned Switzerland and, and it's it's true. I mean, Europe in some ways is more market friendly, and in some ways, I was watching that that now Denmark, in order to do your PhD, you now have to fund it toward right. uh, foreign means and. In the U.S., there are still some universities basically fund all admitted PhDs. So, in some ways, the countries are are, are changing in very different ways. And 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 yes, I, I guess the the issue is that very very strange because sometimes a lot of politicians put examples that are very weird in in the mm-hmm. campaign of 1990. I, I, I was just born but but what i hear is that that for example when Vargas Llosa used to, to spoke he he used to say that his model was switzerland and he a lot of times mentioned switzerland and and, and people particularly in rural peru didn't know anything about switzerland and and it was very strange for people to try to understand the Switzerland system because it's very regionalistic and it's uh, it's very particular and, and yeah it's right. kind of strange. Right. And, I mean, look at why, ask yourself why does Switzerland have a wealth tax? Well, it's not because there's a big populist movement in Switzerland of, uh, of uh, kind of left populist or right populist backlash. It's because Switzerland is famously a safe haven for people to store their wealth. And that's wealth that's accumulated outside of Switzerland. And so they don't have capital gains taxes. Instead, they have a wealth tax, in part because they need to tax as a fee. You know, they're, kind of, they're kind of providing a service to people who store their wealth in Swiss, in Swiss banks. And so as the fee for, for that service, you know, they earn the wealth outside the country. They store it in a Swiss bank, and they have to pay uh, a, a wealth tax on it. So it comes from a different source in the, in, the, in the Swiss public. It's not, it's, it's a purely technocratic policy rather than one that is, um, that one, one that represents some deeper cultural undercurrent that, that is worrying. And, you know, I think one of the ironies, and I'm glad you bring up examples like Bolivia and Peru, because, um, you know, a lot of the people who voted for Trump, like on the more intellectual side, uh, the people that live in D.C. who are sort of on the, on the radical right, you know, one of the things that they, they say is, you know, we want to end immigration because we're worried about America becoming like Brazil, right? <laughs> uh, and, but in turn, what do we have? We have a president that is engaged in import substitution policy, <laughs> and we have a left flank that wants to socialize wealth and redistribute it and is turning against entrepreneurs and turning against big business. And it's like, well, uh, I'm sorry, but, but it seems like voting for Trump and having Trump be elected has only accelerated the, the trends towards, you know, what people call Brazil, Brazil, Brazilification, where we have a kind of um, elite overclass that is, uh, and, 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 all this, and all this radical uh, anti-market policy. Um, We've only accelerated that trend, and, and we got it through white working class people voting, not uh, <laughs> not a bunch of Latin American immigrants. 
Yeah, it's it's very funny because you you mentioned the the, the pipeline to, from the libertarianism to the all right, and in in Brazil is very curious because it was kind of like that in a very strange way. A lot of the support that 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 that, that probably the Brazil has a larger libertarian movement at least in South America, and and Bolsonaro gets support from the libertarian movement. So that wasn't when. They nominated the the prime minister, which is a libertarian that doesn't like Wittgenstein. <laughs> it was kind of strange, but but uh, but also not that unexpected. Well, I mean, I have a friend here. I won't name names, but you know, he's on the Catholic right. You know, he's and he was, you know, rooting for Bolsonaro to, you know, start murdering leftists, <laughs> right? And he was saying that he is looking. He wants Brazil to become a kind of Mussolini-style, you know, uh, theocratic, you know, authoritarian state, and it's like, oh my God, this is this is an actual current that's in the right wing of American conservative politics now, and yeah. you see the exact same thing in a mirror image on the left, where you have, you know, people who should know better uh, defending uh, the Venezuelan regime and saying that. Uh, you know, this is it, it, it's true socialism hasn't been tried because, uh, you know, in one breath they say actually Venezuela is state capitalism, and then you critique it and they say, well, actually it's socialism. Uh, <laughs> it, just, it just didn't work because of uh, American imperialists interfering. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean the Trotskyists have been very clear, even with they have bunker up in many ways, but they at least have you know acknowledged that that. Chavez is a left wing, and they were part of left, so it, it's not state capitalism. But yeah, I, I mean, would get with the populace. Venezuela. So you know, Matt Bruning had this ridiculous post the other day where he said that uh, that Norway uh, uh, is more socialist than, than Venezuela. Um, now, the way he's defining that is very specific. He's he's saying, well, socialism just means ownership of the means of production, right? And if you look at the national accounts, in part because Norway has a massive social welfare, uh, social wealth fund, because they, they uh, have such big oil reserves, um, but they that, that's counted as you know a large public sector, right? And then um, then Norway also tends to have a bigger public sector. But Nor Norway also has a market economy with rule of law, with property rights, with you know. Uncorrupt systems of government. They, 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 yes, they buy equity in companies through the sovereign wealth fund, but they do it through an independent management board that is no different than like an institutional investor or any other pension fund that is doesn't doesn't you know communicate with the government at all. In fact, has very strong ethics rules against communicating with the government. That's that's the kind of social democracy for sure. But socialism, as, as you know, someone like Hayek or Mises or any of the early critiques, critics of like socialist population, they define it as central plan, not as just not as just who technically, you know, controls the asset on a balance sheet. It, and, and Venezuela is by that definition far more socialist because they try to institute price controls. They, uh, you know, the the government doesn't just nationalize industry. They uh, take a active um, arms-length approach to how it's regulated and managed and use it for political means 
Like, like that, that is that social, and that's the danger, right? I think someone mentioned online that there hasn't been a really close study of the Bolivian economy, why relatively is working. And I think it's very curious, but I think it also has some relationship, I guess, to what I think has is the mentality of the Andean countries, because I think even I live in Lima, technically it's near the coast and the beach is pretty near, but we have the mentality of the, we live in an Andean country. We have the image of, of the mountains, as, as, as the local image, of, and and this is the same with Ecuador that also have a coast. But but I think in Andean countries, curiously, there is kind of a very strong work ethic. I mean, I, I see people working from eight a.m. to eight p.m. and and I don't think that's. For example, I know that in in Sweden. One immigrant was expelled because he refused to take vacations, and I, I, I suppose right. someone who does something like things that people do in the Indian countries will also get in trouble because it's a very committed work ethic, which is kind of of sometimes it's very curious that that, that people think that, that that Latin Americans don't like to work, but but at the same time. For example, I was surprised that it was a very marginalized area in Peru in that had the tur was a tur producer of the of the of the income product of the country, and and it was very curious. But now that I think it's an area that that produced a lot of of, of um, there is a lot of commerce in that area, and despite being relatively marginal. It's a place where all people go to buy a lot of things from um, car parts, from clothes, and, and but it's a very marginal area. I mean, there is uh, literally they don't have any. I mean, it's and I think it has to do also with with that it was considered an African American neighbor, uh, African Latin American neighborhood, uh, the African Peruvian neighborhood. As for per excellence, and I think that's why it became so marginalized, despite that it's very productively economically. And it's, I think, in Andean countries there there is kind of this duality, and it's very kind of strange. But at the same time, I think in Bolivia there is something like that. For example, Adalto is is more close to Galdach Utopia than 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 whatever. Uh, che Guevara dream of making Bolivia when he tried to make a revolution. I mean, it's it's as far as I have read, is you can buy anything from weapons to cars to parts of dolls. Apparently, right. it's 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 kind of the market utopia that that that, that some of the Chinese have, but I doubt they go and go because it's yeah. As far as I have here, it's quite dangerous. If people don't know you, basically all of the population if are indigenous origins. So, if a white American libertarian goes, it's going to look like lost there. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, that's um, that's part of the transition that countries have to make, and part of the hardest part about transitioning to, you know, a first world developed economy with the, the level of GDP that per capita that. Countries like the United States have is um, you know, some of the some of the examples of functioning markets uh, in the more developed underdeveloped countries like rely so so heavily on social trust 
and and less on formal systems um, that it can be very hard for outsiders to participate. Um, and and this is actually like you know part of um, sort of why why I take it to be a kind of a neoliberal perspective and. and in the neoliberal point of view, maybe why neoliberalism is especially unpopular in, in countries that uh, undergo reform is when those when when you bring in more formal systems of like paddling property rights, legal systems, um, you end up disrupting those more communitarian systems, uh, and that's good in the long run, but in the short run. Um, People feel like their culture and their community bonds are being broken down, uh, but it's also like in the long run, you know, my perspective is it, it, it points to why social trust is, is overrated, right? Like one of the one of the beautiful things about coming to the United States, or if you visit Manhattan, right? If you visit Manhattan, it's the center of global capitalism. Um, people are vulgar; <laughs> they they flip you off, they yell at you in the streets. Uh, there's people of all different races and colors and, and religious backgrounds. Or you get you know Orthodox Jews walking alongside Muslim immigrants, walking alongside atheists, walking alongside you know uh, global financiers, <laughs> and uh, and it works with a very low level of interpersonal social trust, precisely because um, there are legal systems in place and, and, and personal systems in place. And that, that in, in, in personal systems, they're valuable because they scale, right? Uh, you can build a much larger scale society and economy when you don't have to rely on knowing the person, but you, you instead rely on, uh, you put trust in the institutions to um, adjudicate you, adjudicate the, the, if you've been defrauded, and to ensure, you know, beforehand that people don't even have the incentive to defraud you because they know that they'll get caught, and um, and that's a, that's that's complicated because there's left and right versions that have uh, have a lot of, you know, social anomie, you know, kind of critiques of capitalism and globalization where they, you know, on the right they're worried about you know communitarianism and the decline of religion and uh, you know. One wanting to live in more uh, local localist groups, um, and on the left, you have very similar in the framing of solidarity and social solidarity, and uh, and those things are those those things can function on a very small scale. It can function at the level of a village and a community, uh, maybe even um, more you know a city level if it's very homogenous. Yeah. Um, it yeah, and the more, to, the you get, the more you have to replace it with more personal things, and that comes with real costs that people revolt against. But the benefits in the long run are really, really substantial. Yeah, a lot of too, as far as I know, until it had like half million evidence, didn't have any police. So I mean, obviously, social trust was very important because how you going to live and. So, so yeah, and it's very curious because Belize is a very curious example of social trust because there is other community that that develops a lot of social trust. The Mennonites in, in yeah. the Santa Cruz area, they they are a huge part of the economy. Are they Dutch? Are they white? Huh? Yeah, they are. They are. Yeah, they are. Upper. Well, they are between Dutch and German and Russian, so they are a combination. But they are white. Yeah, they're white, yeah. blonde. 
So yeah, they are clearly different than. They go to my community in Belize, too, where my mom is, and uh, and in Mexico. And then that's and that's a, that's always an option, right? Like, um, you know, the men in that community, the the you know the break off Mormon sect, uh, the Amish communities, they they all thrive. You know, they they choose to opt out of the bigger global order and maintain a small community of you know built around their religious practice and um, there's nothing that stops people from doing that it's just it's just that those get harder to that those those get hard to build membership to <laughs> yeah I think they move because in the US they're gonna go to the draft and that's why they move to Latin right. America so that are, is the only thing that they fear, the draft, is they are also pacifists. So. And, and, and it's very curious because Latin America is relatively not a safe place, but it seems that for some reason people respect the Mennonites. And, 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 and as far as I know, they haven't had many troubles with, with burglars and things like that. And it's very curious, but, but yeah, it's, they have been relatively safe in Latin America. Like many people in urban areas that have been in its levels of criminality, even in Chile, which is uh, it was supposed to be a more functional society, the levels of criminality are kind of rising lately. And Argentina will. I mean, it's. A, I think when we talk a, a time back, you, you were saying about the about the trap of middle income uh, yeah. and. And it's very curious because Argentina has tried many things and now it has tried, quote-unquote, the neoliberal government with Macri, but still the the, the results has, are not being as, as, as some people had imagined in the past, that, that it will be a, a, a rapid recovery and the economy will be blooming again. And, and I think it's, it's very curious, but... I guess it also has to do that the country didn't have many trusts, and, and it was a very divisive country. It, it's very, it's not divisive in, in the American sense that there are two sides, because in Argentina the Trotskyists are are a, are very large. I mean, they're part of yeah. the counterculture. There are a lot of Trotsky groups, including the the group that that believes in UFOs, and that it's. Uh, I have forgot their name, but yeah, it's a very weird Trotsky said let's see you for them. Yeah. There are kind of weird uh, Trotsky, but I think that a lot of the, 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 the issues with neoliberalism has to do also with you were mentioning of social trust and the, the issue with men and that was a, of periodizations that that had to do not as as privatize as, as making more functional but you know to send it to the friends of, of politicians and and that way sometimes the access to basic service become much more expensive right. rather than than another thing and i yeah, think i mean the, the neoliberal model i mean it, 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 it gets deserved criticism um but i think it's misidentified so like you know, there is a very naive view that says we can go into developed countries and, and have the World Bank or IMF, you know, uh, incentivize countries to privatize state enterprises or, or whatever. Um, and yeah, if, if they get sold off to oligarchs or sold off to personal friends and become monopolies, that's not really the point of privatization. <laughs> privatization. Like the point of privatization is... Um, 
allowing firms to fail, right? Like, like in Canada, we privatized uh, Air Canada, our, our national airline, uh, and because we wanted to be competitive with global airlines. Um, and yes, we failed it out when it went bankrupt. Uh, so we we didn't fully privatize it, but the but the ultimate goal of privatization is to say, look, you have to compete and um, you have to compete and, and make investments and change your business models to be globally competitive. And if not, you fail. Uh, whereas a, 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 a state-owned enterprise can't fail by definition. Um, and if, if your model of privatization is just to hand off public resources to rich people to make into monopolies, and that's not really the point. That's not what privatization is about. Um, so I think there's there's totally valid critiques of, of you know what you know people in the literature call the neoliberal economic development models, uh, and I include that in, in terms of like a very naive approach to trade, uh, or uh, you know a very naive approach to uh, uh, to debt repayment. Um, you know these these things aren't. But just, but just because like the IMF uh, and World Bank are not exactly um, disinterested parties, doesn't imply that the right way to develop uh, is a rejection of markets and private property and uh, competition. It, it means that the that the model has to be more nuanced and more context sensitive. Um, it has to take into account the fact that uh, if you if you don't have rule of law and you don't have um, efficient competitive markets in place, uh, you don't have education systems, you don't have capital markets, then uh, yes, privatizing industry uh, maybe maybe inferior to having it be state managed. Um, and in fact, like if you look across the, the world, so successful countries. Uh, I'm thinking of East Asian countries or even some of the South Asian countries, like they maintain high levels of, of state control um, and and work in a piecemeal way to introduce rules and meritocracy and other systems uh, that govern those organizations in a way that um, in a way that isn't just based on you know who has favorable connections um, and. And, 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 and privatizing and liberalizing in a way that's a little more gradual. Uh, and I think that is turning out to be kind of prescient because the, the places that just did the so-called shock therapy, uh, <laughs> like they, they may be doing better than in, in a counterfactual where there's no liberalization at all, but um, I think that model has rightly been, uh, uh, rightly fallen into disrepute. Uh, and that's a, that's a tough thing to say as a, as a globalist in the world. <laughs> like, but I think that's something that, you know, in my internal critique is like, you know, the neoliberals of the 1990s have to update their beliefs uh, and, um, and come up with a synthesis rather than antithesis, right? They, they, we can't, we, we, the, the people screaming about, you know, you know, who want to shove it, so he's the style approach, they're, they're, they're even more wrong than the people who, you know, but, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some uh, middle way that uh, integrates the criticisms with the, you know, that doesn't throw the baby out of the bathwater, right? 
So what do you think about the Minneapolis model? Because the Minneapolis sound, uh, the piece in the Atlantic that was described last year, the, the Minneapolis is... Yeah, Minneapolis and Paul, the Twin City series, as, as a as a miracle, and it was kind of strange because it, it has it's a very curious uh, approach to, to to Minneapolis, and it was very curious to one could either describe Minneapolis as a as a as a theme of social democracy, and could have something to do that that that, that it had a lot of, <laughs> of of Scandinavian immigrants also there, but yeah. and at the same time, also one could look at as a as a neoliberal utopia because also there are large corporations there, and well, there is the Bowl of America, the, what what better yeah. symbol of, of of neoliberalism? And Not only that, but the, 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 you know, one of their biggest comparative advantages is management. Like Minneapolis is famous for um, intermediate and, and, and management style industries. Uh, and, I, and if you think about like business managers, that's like the archetype of a new liberal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's very curious. And it has to do with, with the debate of, of, of left neoliberalism and social democracy. What, for example, I mean, in some ways, the the reforms that have happened in in Scandinavian countries could be described in some ways as 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 left neoliberalism rather than as a more right neoliberalism approach that has been employed in Latin America, which it was you know a more um, mandatory approach toward, for example, I mean the school choice in Sweden seems to work much better than Chile, which was a, a more right. violent approach. I mean. The Chilean education system is, is relatively good at the top, particularly because there is a lot of money put into into research in astronomy. They have a, a lot of, of, of money from from overseas going to, to astronomy, and that's why the, the university ran well. But but the 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 system of education of Chile it's, it's not that good for one who think that the country that has the level of income of Chile. And maybe it has to do with with the kind of uh, it, it's doing. Once I interviewed a, a historian who teaches Scandinavian history, and he said that the problem that many people make is that they don't understand the the, the histories that are particular to to, right. to each country. And for example, Sweden was very pro-immigrant because they had a lot of of guilt from from being neutral in in, in World War Two, and that. That explains why Sweden has much more immigrants than Denmark or Norway, and and, and things like that 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 are kind. Of, and I think that's the trouble in of, of neoliberal. Uh, I was I don't know if even to describe right wing neoliberals, but but of, of, of conservative libertarians, sure. for example, have been pushing like like for for charter schools, uh, mm -hmm. even when. Uh, the results are mixed in some cases. I think that, I think that for example, charter schools are, are, as far as I have read, there are some interesting projects of charter schools, but that are not necessarily the ones that rank better. For example, there are charter schools, particularly assigned of, of kids with the special needs. There are some charter schools designed with with uh, with uh, teenagers who have addictions there to to drugs or alcohol, and there are also some charter schools for adult students. And so there are some interesting charter schools that I don't think are the quite that are in the headlines because um, probably most of, of, of their graduates are not going to end up in college for, for different reasons. But 
uh, and probably they won brands higher in, in the in exams. But I think for them, it, it, it's very helpful to their lives. And, and, and But at the same time, I, I think that the narrative of market is good for mar market itself is not necessarily, you know, like that right. fair. Oh, I totally agree with all that. I mean, um, I mean, if you think with the right neoliberal view, uh, more libertarian approach, um, it's, it, it, it portrays the market as like the absence of government. Um, and in some ways thinks of the market as, and property rights as like the natural state of the world. Um, whereas I think, the, I think people who study this more carefully come to the conclusion that actually markets are themselves a product of state capacity. And like the ability to uh, you know, impartially adjudicate legal disputes is, a, is one example of a form of state capacity that has to be built up over time. And actually, in that sense, it's like the rise of the liberal state in, in Europe was the rise of the strong state in some ways, um, and the rise of a more centralized state that, that wrested control from feudal uh, lords and stuff like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, my, my view has evolved to being one where um, what we want are good institutions and high institutional quality. And that and high institutional quality both predicts your ability to run effective state-owned enterprises and your ability to, to run a efficient, fair market. Uh, it's like a common factor to both. Um, and so the naive sort of libertarian view, which, which is like, let's just get government out of the way and the market will, will run itself, um, has a mistaken understanding of how, market, of, of how, how, how uh, much how, how markets are themselves a kind of public good that, that governments have to be already capable of providing. If, if governments fail at providing other kinds of public goods, they're probably not going to be that good at providing markets. Um, so, you know, in the case of charter schools, some of the some of the, the states that have the most successful charter schools in the U.S. are actually uh, blue states that vote Democrat, um, right? And, and, and it's partly because they take a more... Uh, if they have a less laissez-faire view of how markets work. They they, they see markets as a, as a tool. Um, they have tend to have better run public services overall, um, and so approach the way of designing a charter school market uh, with, with the same kind of care, where they have protocols for when schools have to close because if schools are performing, it has to close. But that's that's that otherwise you don't get the competitive the competition uh, that charter schools are supposed to be about providing, right? Um, and if you don't have a protocol for how a school closes, because school closures are pretty dramatic events, you have to reallocate students, um, and you have to have metrics and protocol, because there's not like a profit loss signal there. Um, so, you know, states that, the red states that just say, hey, let's liberalize, let's just uh, give everyone a voucher, and uh, there's no rules, <laughs> that just leads to a lot of, you know, Wild West kind of behavior uh, with, with much poorer outcomes and actually uh, more variable outcomes because you'll have you'll have parents uh, that, you know, and, and institutions that monitor their schools and make sure they send their kids to the very best schools, but then other parents who don't monitor their schools and those schools degrade in quality. Um, and I think it's it's kind of a microcosm of how um, markets work overall. It's like uh, you need to have the right rules and. Those rules require a level of state capacity to enforce 
Um, and if you already have the state capacity to uh, enforce the fair market, it suggests you already have the state capacity to do other things that the, government, that the governments do, including providing public goods and infrastructure. Um, so, you know, and, the, and the, this goes to a, a bias that is sort of from an Austrian school perspective. Like, the Austrian school, if you go back and if you think about how the Austrian school influenced sort of right neoliberalism through the through the 20th century, uh, Mises and Hayek and, and, and the early Austrians were reacting against German historicism. And the claim of German historicists that you know, the law of economics in one country are different from the law of economics in a different country, because because countries develop with a historical path, and every every country is particular. And the early Austrians were reacting against that, and that's why they talk about deductive methods and you know human action, um, because the argument is like these laws of economics apply universally; <laughs> they're deductive. And if uh, if the man curve slope down in America, they slope down in Germany, they slope down in Peru, and they slope down everywhere. Um, and and therefore, uh, and therefore, we can take a relatively naive approach that doesn't focus so much on particularity. And I think that view is is one of the biggest problems with that right libertarian heritage, um, and why I think folks like Danny Roderick, for example, um, are an important uh, corrective to that view, where they invest much more into ethnography and into understanding the context, specificity, and the particularities of different cultures and, and countries and traditions, and recognize that um, while well, well, the, the, the hardcore historicist view that you know laws don't apply, economic laws don't apply in different countries is not true, that uh, countries have their own regional traditions, right? So like, you know, Minneapolis-St. Paul example, like, yeah, there are people who argue that yeah, it's because there's a high degree of Scandinavian immigrants there, and Scandinavians brought their culture with them, brought their norms that were, uh, you know, bringing bringing the high state capacity, the high institutional capacity that was already existing in Scandinavia, and brought it to Minneapolis, and their their current present day institutions reflect that. Well, that 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 is a an example of history mattering. Um, and we can't, you know, expect to copy whatever Minneapolis does right onto a different city or a different country and get the same results because they don't come with the same history. Um, so that, that, again, like, that's another example. Like, we need to synthesize. We have to say there are some rules that apply universally, but there's also a lot of particularity that has to be taken into account. And there are no, no formula that can just be applied. Yeah, the very similar early libertarians arguing also for schools for the poor, and it's very curious because Peru is one of the countries that don't have any form of charter school, but despite of that, like half of the population go to to private schools. So some of the private schools are very uh, bad quality private schools, even in the more poor areas, and it's there are some that have some quality, but it's very difficult for parents to know why. I mean, there are some. I mean, Peru, the mission basically is difficult for public universities. So there was one school where older students of the last year of high school entered to, to a public university, which was kind of surprising because that's it's something that I don't think happens in, in any kind of school. But in general, the, the results have been pretty bad. And, and when some experts were debating uh, 
what role should the state has to do with, with them. It says also that if they don't do something as, as creating a charter, it's very difficult to, to have any kind of accountability to, to, the, to the schools because this, this issue that, that the schools for being private are going to be necessarily good are not, it's not the truth. I mean, the, the more good private schools or the more good for-profit private schools were the ones that were kind of more until uh, more middle class uh, neighborhoods and, 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 and backgrounds and, and, and the, but these schools were not as cheap as, as, as the other ones right. and, and, and it, it, it creates a lot of, of, of troubles and, and I think that sometimes the Chinese have been just after charter schools and, and they have moved to, to, to promote like uh, for profit schools for the poor but, but it's still very very complex. I, I don't think there there have been so the, the the results are very are very complex. But as as one expert was saying the other day, um, the most expensive school is a is a cheap school that is bad. So basically, if a, if a kid uh, end up going to a to a bad uh, private school that is uh, bad and the that and he could have been better going to a public school without spending anything because particularly in, a, in the more lower income uh, strains of society uh, even you know uh, $100 is a lot and, and, and things like that so issues like that make me think that, that the issue of education is an issue that, that libertarianism has been pretty dogmatic. It's just like the defense of for-profit schools. And, and it's very curious because a lot of times uh, libertarians talk about, you know, like like being against chronic capitalism, but in the case of particular American uh, uh, for-profit universities, they are working on the on the very chronic capitalism of, of you know, of charging the poor students who will qualify to, to government assistance and, and, and charging then much more than, for example, a community college. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a weird. Uh, but, I mean, that brings us back to uh, American domestic politics a little bit and, and the egalitarianism debate because, uh, you know, all, all the major candidates that I've seen um, in the Democratic primary have announced, you know, have been pulled towards the Bernie position of uh, free college tuition. <laughs> And uh, and you know while while we're proposing uh, taxes on billionaires, but but uh, also proposing um, basically free college for upper middle class kids who can't who because <laughs> right now in America, like if you want to go to college um, and you're poor, there's a lot of financial aid, and it can be actually pretty affordable to go to college in, in your own state, um, if not free. Uh, the, the remaining group that still pays significant amount of money for college are the middle and upper middle classes. Um, and those kids don't feel like they're rich because when they're in school, they make no money and their parents stop giving them money <laughs> and they have to take out student loans and then they have to pay back those loans and uh, they graduate to become, with their history degree, they you know, become service sector workers and they, and, you know, they make a series of poor choices, um, but they're not... You know, they are the highly educated who will eventually be running, you know, the marketing 
team of Pepsi. And, you know, the, you know, the, there are people who uh, don't need uh, free college. Um, and I think it reveals the way American the politics on the left has become uh, an opera, uh, 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 internecine war between um, the upper class and the and the very rich, and so you, a lot of the you know modern socialists on Twitter and stuff like that are like the Chapo people. Like they're they're wealthy, highly educated, privileged, upper middle class people, um, and they have they call themselves socialists because they have an immense resentment for for people who are even richer, <laughs> um, and and they. You know, they push for benefits that essentially accrue to other people like them, um, but sound like they're socialists because it's free stuff and it's universal daycare for people, for rich people who live in cities, uh, <laughs> stuff like that. And it's like, yeah. like, like this is this is how we, we wreck the American economy is uh, we build in this noble class that feels like they're victims. Um, and they they vote themselves a bunch of goodies. Um, well, well, you know the actual working class and poor are kind of left behind. Um, but anyway, uh, I just wanted to bring that full circle because I know we're talk we were supposed to talk about taxes, but we ended up drifting into education policy a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's interesting the certainly education policy. Uh, I mean in Chile there's been a, a huge debate over the issue of um some uh, um congress people on the on the left in chile are, are wanting to to make a mandatory for 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 uh the top private schools in chile to 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 allow some slots to poor students mm. and there has been a, a huge debate over that and and and, and why and, and and the conservative have attacked them because they 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 say that that, that that the left has always accused private education of being a, a wrong model for Chile, and now they want you know like like uh, poor students to to move up and 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 uh, to 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 go to the schools that they have demonized and and then it's it's very complex because I was thinking in the in the case of Sweden because if I'm not wrong, uh, even the the school where the princes go with the uh, the prince tell, which I think has seven years, I mean, something like that. Uh, it's it's a school that in theory should receive, uh, uh, I mean, if, if, if a student could pay, it, it, it just pay because it's a private school, but also I think in, in Sweden it's mandatory that schools also participate in the voucher system. So technically a poor family could send their, their, their kids there, but I, I read in the local that, that in, in, the, in the Swedish publication in English that the that basically they 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 have uh, a system that they they put up the they, they receive the applications but they, they don't don't admit it so right. they they search for loopholes and, and this this issue has to do with with I think what you mentioned your article of ribs of the of not only the the upper rich but but also the the upper middle class in general right. like the dream hoarders that they are it's the it's easy to to pinpoint a, a billionaire, but it's less easy to pinpoint you know uh, lawyers, uh, um, 
dentists, uh, college professors, because or they and their kids are trying to to keep in this this ladder, and it's it's really curious. Uh, yeah, that in effect. the U.S. the way we do the same thing, we just we do it through housing and real estate because uh, schools are financed through property taxes, and um, and so there's a, an immense incentive for uh, you know richer neighborhoods to zone out people and then um, have the property rates, property values go up. Uh, that that those property values then pay for uh, you know more property tax, which finance much better schools. Um, and uh, and also contribute to the, the wealth of those families. And so you have a system through property and through property exclusion and real estate appreciation that locks out uh, people from social mobility because they, they can't move to the best schools because they can't afford it. And the people in those best schools have better funding because property taxes are higher and also uh, more wealth because their, their home values are so much higher. Um, and it's a, it's a really big problem. And, you know, you don't, you don't, you haven't seen, uh, other than Elizabeth Warren has a, has a proposal, um, but Democrats in general don't like talking about, you know, increasing the supply of housing. In fact, and in, in, they tend to be, you know, more left proponents tend to, uh, you know, especially at the city level, uh, treat housing development and increasing the housing stock as like a conspiracy by developers, right, and to gentrify the neighborhoods and so on. Uh, but gentrification only happens because if you don't let people build in the rich areas, they'll build in the poor areas. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's true. Yeah, I mean, and, the, uh, and so and it's just part of this, part of the ideology where um, you you can paint yourself as a victim, not not realizing how you are actually the oppressor. Yeah, that's that's basically Oregon and California versus versus uh, Minnesota, like Minneapolis, particular Minneapolis, Twin City that has passed a very deregulatory uh, housing vision, and and the and Oregon. Although I think California is afraid to change with Gavin Newsom, which is a very weird guy to 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 to. Put it in a political theory. He's really a very yeah. terrible kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm interested to see what happens there. I think LA, Los Angeles in particular, I think has just reached a kind of breaking point because yeah. um, you know they have something like 50,000 unsheltered homeless people. Um, it's just it's just the homelessness crisis in in Los Angeles is just, especially in the last 15 years, gotten. In San Francisco, also, I think is is, is huge. Too, yeah. In Lima, you see the same thing in San Francisco, where they just voted on an initiative called Prop C, um, and the point of the, uh, the point of the ballot initiative is to tax uh, uh, billion-dollar companies, so taxing basically the tech companies that are in San Francisco to pay for homelessness services, right? And so the framing of that whole debate is: oh, homelessness is being caused by tech companies, rather than being caused by the people who have historically lived in San Francisco in the nicest neighborhoods, especially on the west side, uh, and refused to zone, refused to allow more zoning. So, like, like, like the San Francisco tried to get rid of homelessness uh, in 2004. They had a big comprehensive initiative, and they couldn't find new places to construct shelters. <laughs> there was no space to construct anything. So uh, they ended up, like, refurbishing some old hotels that were in some of the, uh, like, in the, in the Tenderloin that were in, you know, the most... Um, 
poverty-stricken and drug-stricken parts of the city, which is not where you want to put people if you're trying to get them off drugs. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's part of the, again, part of the ideology where it's like, we're going to blame successful people, we're going to blame the billionaire class, and we're going to tax them to fund uh, insufficient public housing initiatives um, because we don't want to admit the problem is us. The problem is is the is upper middle class people hoarding all the housing supply. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that also happened in, 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 in New York in the, in, the, in the case of education, the, when uh, some schools were seen to, to move between um, some rich areas and some poor areas, and, 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 and some parent was, you know, that these kids from that neighborhood that were mainly African-American were going to move to toward the school, he started protesting and, and then he said, no, but I'm not a racist, I, I'm a Democrat. And, and it was right, very right. funny, but 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 it still become, uh, not, not necessarily a bureau, but a lot of people uh, share it in, uh, online and with, with some certain comments. And, and yeah, I guess even Lima, it's starting to, to, to rise a, a new NIMBY movement. And Lima, yeah. it, it's for different reasons, it's difficult to, to construct. So, so now, basically, houses are becoming buildings, but in some areas, are trying to, to restrict it. And and it's going to be interesting how how it's going to develop this kind of thing because Lima is a very curious place. In Peru, in general, the the, the, the cost of living is relatively high. But for example, it's higher than in some in, of so, the the cost of some things are higher than than Chile, but the the income is much less, and it's, it's so that's very that generates a lot of, of curious uh, um, dynamics of, of population dynamics. For example, in Peru, like families, there are very long families that left there, so they live uh, sometimes, you know, like in the house of the grandfather, they live all all their kids and their grandkids, and and sometimes even their great great grandkids and. Yeah, it's it, in some ways they in in that regard use more use less resources to to fulfill their their lives and and but I, I wonder how this this more individualistic and more cosmopolitan or global mindset that, that this kind of becoming emerging in, in Peru is going to to change that because. Um, I guess there will be, you know, uh, a need for. Uh, although it's also what what people say in in the in the, in the U.S. Like uh, there are people that 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 are moving back to their parents' basement, and and yeah. and that it was considered kind of strange, and and but in Peru, basically, if you are in your twenties and you live by yourself, people are considered you are, are weird, even if you have a job, because. That's strange. What are you and people who think many things of you that either you are gay or or, or you are a drug addict, in particular for homophobic reasons that, that suddenly live very strongly in Peru. Like, and it's it's very very curious how this, these dynamics are different. But but I, I, I see sometimes that these dynamics sometimes go from one place to the other, sometimes go for, for from the other place to the other, and and they're really. Curious, but I, I guess also has to, the, the as you mentioned, like house uh, is increasingly more expensive. So many times, the the college grads, even if they have jobs, particularly when they have shorter jobs, it will be much expensive for them to, to live by their own. So it will be 
cheaper to live with her parents. There you go. Yeah, uh, uh, it's all very interesting. Um, yeah, well, I gotta uh, head up, Camila. Yeah. Thank it, you for inviting me back on. It's it was great. It was very. I think it was a great conversation. So people who follow you and um, <laughs> have a cheese in in Twitter. It, it was great. Thanks. Bye. Thanks again. Bye.